everyone. Welcome to Bell Curve. I'm Rachel Breyers, joined by my co-hosts, Mary Scott Hunter and Liz Bashirs. And we are on week gajillion of being quarantined in our homes. <laughs> Though I have to say, I have to say, y'all, ever since Bell Curve launched a year, nearly a year ago, it's been almost a year, Mary Scott, Liz, and I have been recording this podcast socially distanced over Skype. So I guess we're kind of used to this. But y'all, when we interviewed Laura Huckabee Jennings, she told us she does this three-word check-in with her team at Transcend. And I, I think it's just hilarious. So I wondered, what is y'all's three-word headline for this umpteenth week of Corona Teen? Uh, I might not like my kids anymore. <laughs> That's one of the three I words. I might <laughs> not like my kids anymore. I was trying to shorten it. <laughs> Sorry. Liz, you got one? <laughs> y'all, okay, quick story. This is not the direction you wanted to go, Rachel. Bring it. So for a lot of people, this has been a time where work has slowed down a lot. For me, it's a time when work has really, really ramped up. But yesterday, 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 I didn't get out of my pajamas until 2 p.m. I put on workout clothes. I worked out. I took a shower and I put pajamas back on. <laughs> so one of my three words is lazy. Um, another another word is probably tempestuous. Mm. All that because yesterday all all the storms on top of of just being stuck inside for so long anyway that was I think tempestuous is a good word. Mm. Good vocabulary. I don't have number three because <laughs> <laughs> because the dogs are barking, the roofers here, everything's everything's going crazy. Well, the word for for one of your words to be lazy is a new word because you have been working extremely hard this whole time. It was so it was so needed. Oh yeah. Okay, so mine is time for decisions. I feel like we're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I've done a lot of reflecting and thinking, and now I actually need to make decisions based on what will change once life roars back. So I don't want to just reflect and move on. I want to actually make some decisions. So y'all, last time our nation faced a major crisis, at least a major financial crisis, of course, was in 2007. And at the time, it was difficult for anyone to understand, I think, what had happened. We knew it had something to do with the stock market, the real estate market, bubbles, mortgage-backed securities. But there was a lot involved, and it took a long time for what happened to become clear. There is a great movie about that time called Margin Call, where one of the characters is a rocket scientist turned stock trader in a large Wall Street investment firm. And he stayed late into the evening, crunching numbers on a hunch one night and learned that Wall Street hadn't just stepped to the edge of a cliff. It had already fallen off. So a few hours later, there's this scene early in the morning, 3 or 4 a.m., all of the firm's executive leaders are gathered in the boardroom, and the top guy at the table turns to the rocket scientist turned trader and says, I love this scene, he says, maybe you can tell me, he's got this kind of British accent, maybe you can tell me what's going on here, and please speak as you might to a young child or a golden retriever. <laughs> I love this scene so much because really no matter the sector, finance, law, policy, medicine, every field has its own jargon, its own complicated information, and it is a rare and valuable skill if an expert can take complicated ideas and communicate them in ways that anyone can understand. So that's why we are so thrilled to talk today with a special guest who's been doing really exactly that during the coronavirus crisis. Dr. Neil Lamb of the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology is with us. We're so excited. Neil, welcome to Bell Curve. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. Do you have a three-word check-in? <laughs> yes. Or although, an 18-word check-in. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. Well, you know, I, I think my three-word check-in is stay the course, um, which might not make us very happy, and we can dig into that a little bit more. Oh, 
I love that. Well, Dr. Lamb is a Hudson Alpha faculty investigator and vice president for educational outreach. And he's been creating really helpful short explainer videos called Shareable Science about all things COVID-19 that takes this complicated topic and breaks it down on a whiteboard. I have to say replete with stick figures and mosquitoes, which I, I gotta ask you, are you drawing that or is someone with really good handwriting making up your whiteboards? So the whiteboards are all me. Uh, I have had uh, you know, a, a love affair with whiteboards since I was a kid. Um, and fortunately I have neat handwriting and have some bare level of the ability to draw things out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's not all that spectacular. The stick figures are are pretty basic, to say the least. Oh, your handwriting is so much better than mine. I, I promise you that. Well, these videos have helped make the pandemic really easier to understand. So I, I do want to dive into some of the information you've been sharing. But before we do that, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at Hudson Alpha. So um, my background is in human genetics. I have a Ph.D. in human genetics. Um, And over the course of my career, I've worked in research labs. um, I've taught in medical school. I actually had a two-year window in between my PhD where I actually worked in a really large church and did a lot of um, family programming. And then I came to Hudson Alpha, and my job at the Institute is to lead the educational initiative uh, of the Institute. I'm blessed to have an 18-member incredible team of educators and genetic counselors and uh, people that work with university students and IT and media and design. And so our goal really is to create a more genomically literate society and to build the future workforce for the field. In one of your videos called Choose Fact Over Fear, I I really so appreciated that you do acknowledge that even, even scientists are having a hard time keeping track of all the rapidly changing information. Not everyone agrees on how to interpret that information. Can you kind of tell us your process for gathering and interpreting coronavirus information and how do you decide what info or which sources are trustworthy? I'd be glad to. Let me start by saying under typical circumstances, Uh, scientists do their research, they gather their data, they send it to a scientific journal, and it's reviewed. It's called peer review by other scientists. And that's where things really get worked out. I don't think that this is a strong enough hypothesis. I think you need to rework this. And then it's published. And that's really what we began to work from. But in the middle of coronavirus, we are seeing peer review happen real time by researchers all around the world. So scientists are putting their information out prior to peer review in the hopes of getting it into the hands of people faster. And then scientists are debating it on Twitter and on other platforms. So we're really watching the scientific process take place globally and in real time. So I spend a number of hours every day scouring the online archives of information, looking at what people that I respect, that I trust are tweeting, looking at preprints, digging into that data. I also spend a lot of time looking across the different platforms. So I'm on everything from Fox News to the New York Times to BBC to see how the science is being communicated into the broader public. And then that helps me get a sense of what people are asking, how people are seeing information, and pull all that together to figure out how we're going to craft the videos. 
what are some tips for how people can see, you know, because we, we have experts that we do trust, but when you're on Twitter and you don't know what's been peer reviewed, what's in, or what's in what part of the process, what are some ways that we can take that information that we see and like some tips for seeing that we're getting good information, even if it are, hasn't already gone through a more rigorous process? I think that's a great question. Um, I, I think number one, you start with what's the source of the information that you're looking at. So if you are seeing information about the virus that is being written on a website that is devoted to internet gaming and the person that is writing it, <laughs> their bio is all about how they are an, a, an online gamer, I think you might want to take that with a pretty large shaker of salt. Uh, so, so some of it is knowing what your audience is. And we as Americans are not used to doing the level of digging deeper into the nuance. We're used to whatever information is in front of us, we're going to accept that uh, often at face value. So I think you should be skeptical of all data until you've been able to dig into it. And then I think you identify a handful of people who you really respect, who don't have a specific agenda, who aren't being paid to try to create headlines. And then you you watch to see kind of the way that they are are telling and narrating the story. And then the other piece is realize that everybody has biases in the way they tell the information. And no matter how hard we all try to get rid of those, you're still going to see a little bit of it. So recognize up front, these individuals have this perspective. They're incredibly cautious. They're focused on getting the economy back in shape. They're worried about public health. They're worried about their image. And, and just recognize the storyline or the perspective that each person is bringing to the news. You know, I think that's good advice all the time. I think skepticism, healthy skepticism, not skepticism to the point where you don't believe anything. But I think skepticism is pretty important all the time, at least in some healthy amount. And never has it been more important than now. Oh, my goodness. Because there is a lot of, well, you tell me, how much information out there, can you quantify it, is really good information? Ooh, that's a difficult question to answer, Mary Scott. I think that uh, it depends on the source that you're taking it from. If you, you know, there are some sites that, that I have a much higher trust in their information than others. I'm getting lots of people that are sending me social media posts and saying, is this true or not? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, there's a little grain of truth wrapped in a whole bunch of non-truth. And, you know, there are a lot of fact checkers right now that are spending all their time trying to say, nope, this is false. Oh, this is true. Mm, this is partly true. And that's really challenging for our society that's mm -hmm. used to taking so much information in really quickly and just kind of plucking at headlines. The work that we have to do to dig deeper into the nuance is significant and serious. And um, most of the time, we're really pressed for time and don't do that. Well, and that's what I like about shareable science. You're curating all those bits and pieces of information and bringing it to us in a in a way that anybody can understand. And I that's I've let my kids watch it. It's really good information. And but let's take a quick step back because we're recording this on April the twentieth. 
Now, walk us through the story of this virus up to this point. And I know you've spent time on shareable science on this, and that could make this a very long show. But can you give us the Reader's Digest of how do we get to this point? And what is the critical information that we need to know right this very minute? Okay, so here's how we got to this point in a nutshell. In mid-November, individuals in China, especially in the Wuhan province, started seeing atypical upper respiratory and lower respiratory diseases. They didn't seem to follow a typical pattern. And by the time we got to um, New Year's Eve, the 31st of December, um, it was reported out to the World Health Organization. And at that point, it was already an outbreak moving through China of these individuals with this strange um, respiratory infection. A week later, we knew that it was um, caused by a novel member of the coronavirus family of viruses. And efforts began to try to contain it. But by the end of January, it had now started to spread around the globe. And and you and your listeners watched. And, you know, as we went through February and, and into March, we saw it just explode in all of these other countries, um, Italy, for example. Um, and then it made its way to the United States and it began to spread uh, literally virally i know that we overuse that word but but it exponentially began to spread so that by the time we got to the middle of march we were now canceling events and closing businesses and putting moving school to an online format so now here we are on the 20th of april and there are nearly two and a half million people around the globe that have been infected with the virus that causes covid 19 We've had 170,000 almost global deaths. And in the United States, we're uh, over three quarters of a million people infected that we know of that are known infections um, and about 40,000 deaths. So that's kind of the here's how we got to this point. Now, let's talk about the most critical information that I think we take from this point going forward. And I think there are five key points that we can really distill down. The first is. This period of of lockdown, of stay at home, has been very painful, but it has bought us time. And it bought us time to slow the spread of the virus, to get our um, hospital caseload under control, and to try to identify more testing supplies and more treatment. So this, this was a good thing. This was a necessary step, but it's not over. Uh, so can I second. interrupt you right there real quick? Sure so can. we're not, yeah. so that's an interesting point because I think some would say we went into this time of stay in place or quarantine and in order not to get the virus. And that's part of it. But it's also true that we're, when at some point we're going to go back and we had to give some weeks you know, or longer for our hospitals and our healthcare system to be ready. Is that what you just, am I I saying that the right way? Okay. That's a big part of it. We needed to get our hospitals mobilized. We needed to get all the equipment that they needed. And we've got, we needed to get to a place where we could do more testing much more rapidly. And, And I think people would argue we are, everyone would say we are certainly in a better place now than we were three weeks ago. I'm not sure that we're where we need to be in terms of having enough tests available, but we are. We have bought ourselves time for that. And then I think the second piece is that the majority of us still have no immunity to this virus. 
So when we do go back together, we've got to continue to practice that social distancing and, and in public settings, wearing of masks. Our job is to slow the spread of the virus. We are not going to be able to stop the spread right now, but we need to slow it at a rate that we can manage it by testing and by taking care of people and quarantining those that, that do have the virus until they're healthy. So we're, we're about to step into a very different world. Um, and the, the third thing is this will still be circulating among us for months. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that to be, you know, to have us go, ugh, and to, you know, drop our shoulders in despair. We are going to do everything we can not to have to go back into this period of lockdown. But we've got to recognize the majority of us are still vulnerable. And so how do we play this dance? How do we walk this tightrope between loosening restrictions, but still not overwhelming um, the systems with the spread of the virus? And so the fourth piece is that we've got to have more testing. We've got to be able to trace when people are infected and who else have they potentially come in contact with and test those people and then temporarily isolate them. This virus is way more infectious than the flu. Each infected person on average could infect three, uh, two to three other people if we don't take any measures to try to slow that spread. So we've got to think about how we, what this new reality looks like. But then here's the fifth piece, and then, and then, I'll, then I'll hush, because I know I just talked for a really long time. Our collective behavior will determine what happens next. So we are not powerless in this. You and I and all of your listeners have the power to shape what the next two weeks, the next two months looks like with our decisions. And that, I think, is very is empowering. We aren't just at the mercy of this virus, washing our hands, wearing masks in public, practicing social distancing does make a difference. We've seen it over the last three weeks as the potential fatalities have just, the, the estimates have dropped drastically because we have made it so hard for the virus to get a foothold and spread to other people. Talk to us about masks because there's, you know, our the, the, the really good ones need to be for our medical providers, but people can make their own. Are those effective or what's the deal with masks? It's a great question, Mary Scott. So I've actually got my mask here. My mom made this mask for me. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's, it's a simple cloth mask. It's got um, some some pleats. It's got a piece of metal for the nose piece to go around my around my nose and underneath my glasses. So the key is this face coverings masks and face coverings do two things number one they help prevent the spread of virus to us they at least provide some covering to minimize the likelihood of viral particles getting into our nose and mouth and every mask provides some protection even the facial the cloth mask it's not as good as the n95 masks but again as you said we need to hold those for our healthcare providers, at least until they're present at a much higher uh, amount. But the other important thing is that we need to be wearing masks out in public to prevent us from unintentionally spreading the virus that causes COVID-19 to other people. The most unsettling thing about this virus for me 
is that number one, I can spread it days before I ever develop symptoms and I never know that I have infected someone else. And number two, we're seeing at least some portion of people that are infectious that never develop symptoms. Mm. So just saying, oh, I feel great. I don't have a fever. I don't have a cough. So I'm fine to be out in public isn't true. So we need to behave as if all of us could potentially be infectious. And so that face covering is really a courtesy to the people around us to slow any spread that might come from us. You know, you said that there'll be a lot of folks who don't necessarily think that we going in our houses and quarantining helped stop, you know, flatten the curve that maybe it wasn't as bad as everybody said it was. How does that make you feel and how do how do people who are in a position like you are to be looking at science and making recommendations, how do you sort of handle it when maybe people don't take it or don't believe it or distrust what seems to be factual scientific information? How, how do folks like you deal with that? Rachel, I think that's a fantastic question. And, and the answer that I'm going to give is specific around COVID-19, but I think it's true for lots of other areas of science. And I think it starts with recognizing that it's very difficult for all of us to understand something that we can't visually see and that I can't touch and put my arms around. So when we talk about this invisible virus, it's really hard to get a handle on how it could shut the country down. And when you hear people say, we've got months more before we've got a vaccine or this is going to take a while, they want, we want rapid answers and we want something that we can immediately take action on. So I get why there is a perspective that this wasn't as bad as the models led it to be or that we're being misled by the science. Part of the reason why I try to craft the shareable science videos is to say, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. And we don't always all agree on this. Different people can look at the data and come up with very different models. But those models are receptive. They're, they're based on new data as well. And we've all done a great job of dropping those numbers. So it is a little bit of a, let me try to put this in, in jargon-free language, but also recognize that not everybody is going to agree with me or is going to um, is going to take the actions that I would like them to take. And we've all got free will, and that's the world in which we live. So since you just brought up the V word, vaccine, <laughs> um, you know, I, one of the things that we've heard over and over again is that the real light at the end of the tunnel is the development of a vaccine. Um, that the real light at the end of the tunnel is is immunity at a, at a large enough scale to where it, it can't take hold again. Um, and one of your videos, uh, one of your shareable science videos talks about vaccines, what they are and why it might take a while to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Would you walk our uh, audience through that for us, please? Yeah, I'd be glad to. So a, a vaccine essentially is priming your body. It's a preemptive uh, strike against getting the infection later on. You are giving your body through a vaccine a little bit of the outside coating of the virus so that your immune system says, hey, I've never seen this before. This looks strange. I need to prepare an immune response so that if you are infected later, your body says, oh, yeah, I've seen this. I know exactly what I need to do with this and can mount a response faster. If you haven't been vaccinated, 
it may be seven to 10 days after the onset of symptoms before antibody production really kicks in for your immune system. If you've already been vaccinated, then your body is primed to much more quickly respond with antibodies. So, so that's why I think a vaccine is, is key. It, it really is that preventative approach. The challenge is there's a whole lot of science that's got to go on in the creating of a vaccine. We've got to know exactly what piece of the virus our body will raise an appropriate immune response against. Mm-hmm. How much of that do we use? Because you certainly don't want the body to go into immune overload. You know, we talk about the cytokine storms that people who, who have COVID-19, they seem to start to recover and then they have this hyperimmune response that often lands them in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Their immune system's gone haywire. It's over-responded. So we, we want to walk that line with a vaccine really carefully. And then there are lots of questions about what's the appropriate safety and are there long-term effects? And I don't know that we would want to give millions of people a vaccine that we've tested on a few hundred individuals over a span of five weeks. Hmm. So, so the clinical process is intentionally designed to be methodical. The first stage is to say, is this even safe? Does this cause major health issues? The second stage is if it is safe, does it actually do what we want it to do? Does it give you some level of immunity? And then the third stage is let's look at a whole lot of people from all different backgrounds, from all different health histories, and is it effective for that audience? What we're seeing right now with vaccine development is probably the most rapid vaccine development we have ever had in human history. But even still, we are looking at sometime in 2021 before we've got something that we are really competent in giving to people in the large in the long term. So that means that until that point, we continue to look for therapies. We continue to think about how do we minimize vaccine, how do we minimize virus spread, and we wait for for the vaccine. And there are probably going to be lots of vaccine trials that fail. So we've got to have multiple vaccines moving forward. I think right now there are like 60 or 70 potential early stage vaccines, three of which are now entering into human clinical trials. Um, And we're going to watch those really closely. But this is not something that we can't we can't snap our fingers and science our way to an answer. 2021. Really? Scott, for, for a vaccine, I said 2021. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean we're gonna be in lockdown until 2021. But it thank does you. mean yeah, <laughs> it, we are not gonna be in lockdown. I'm coming back to what your three words were. You know, I, I don't want you to not like your kids for, you know, <laughs> until 2021. My kids won't survive until 2021, Neil. <laughs> they will not survive. <laughs> I will not survive. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, traditionally it's like four to five years to develop vaccines from scratch. Um, So, you know, 12 to 18 months is ambitious. I think it can be done, but we have to think about this um, in a very different timeframe. Well, Neil, who are the folks who are stepping up to be in the human clinical trials? I, I mean, that seems to me quite a, quite a thing to raise your hand and say, yes, I will be a guinea pig. (laughs) How does that process work? Yeah, it's a huge issue, especially in those stage one and stage two when you're asking about safety. 
And, and you're really looking for altruistic people who are willing to say, yep, I am willing to be a guinea pig for the hope of greater good down the road. Hmm. And you want to make sure that that if you're going to reimburse them for their time or if you're going to cover some of their, you know, their medical care, that you aren't giving them such an incredible incentive that they are choosing it just because it's financially valuable. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, you've got to you, you can't be. You can't make it so attractive that it overrules maybe their own internal decision making. And you've got to make sure that they are understanding what it means to, to consent into this study. Um, these are people that I take my hat off to. These are heroes in every sense of the word um, that are willing to say, yep, I will be a guinea pig for the hope of an answer to save somebody else's life. Oh, wow. Well, and, and let's just say a vaccine does come along soon. We all pray it will. Do you think that things will ever return to the normal as we once knew them? So the normal as we once knew them varies if we're talking about my kids who are teenagers in early 20s or my parents who are in their 70s who lived through polio epidemics. So, you know, part of our history, much of our history has dealt with epidemics and with people having to go into quarantine and with, with the miracle of vaccines. But for our younger audience, that's, that, you know, they've never lived in a world like that. I don't think we are ever going to go back to exactly what we saw, you know, last November and December. Our world has changed. For number, number one, we're so much more aware of, of pandemics. And this is the third coronavirus epidemic in the last 20 years. And we will see these again. This is, this is just the way viruses work when they infect a, a new host like a human. Now, that said, we will tiptoe back towards normalcy. We will at some point gather together in crowds. We will go to restaurants. We will hug people we love and we will celebrate at sports events and, and at concerts. But the path back to that is going to be slow and we're going to have to think about things in a different way. Um, and our world has already changed. We've seen that we can function in virtual and so I think we're going to see a lot more people that are now going to work from a home instead of working in, in a business setting. Um, so I think, I think we are stepping into a different world that will bear resemblance to what we've loved, but we would be foolish if we thought we could just go back to large crowds, especially right now without keeping in mind we still have this virus traveling through. And I don't want to sound like I'm being a doom and gloom or that I'm saying we should not open things up. I'm incredibly optimistic. We've, we've plateaued in terms of our new cases, and we're, we have done the thing that we set out to do with the lockdown. And America is still a leader in science and biomedicine, and we've got incredible minds working across the country and around the globe we will science our way to solutions for this, um, but it won't look exactly like it used to. I love that. We will science our way. That, that's a, that sounds like a great, <laughs> we can do this. We will science our way forward. <laughs> what are some 
lessons that you can already see being learned through this process, through this epidemic that will help us prepare for the next one? Because like you said, this is the third coronavirus in the last 20 years, and it's been a little bit different every time. But maybe some of the right lessons weren't taken from the first two that we're learning now for number four. What are, what are some of those lessons? So I think there are some key takeaways that we need to we need to hold on to. Number one, we need to have a better preparation system. We we wasted a month of watching and not really stepping to the forefront and saying we've got to have more tests. We've got to make sure those tests work. We had some we had some slippages and some mistakes with the early testing with with the CDC. It took us a while to bring other tests online. We don't have the public health system in our country that we once had to be able to detect and trace and follow up on contacts. We live at a thin margin of supplies, whether we're talking about toilet paper or protective personal equipment. And I get, you don't want enormous stockpiles. That's not good for anybody's bottom line, but we are on a razor thin margin. And when you're talking about a global pandemic and countries and states are competing against each other for who gets testing supplies and hospital protective equipment, that is really, really problematic. Um, And I think because we've now seen the importance of taking action quickly, I hope that we will be more open in the future to saying, we're going to put a pause. If, if there's something circulating in other countries, we're going to potentially put a pause on having people show up at hundred thousand person sporting events. But let, let's just let's just wait on that. Let's let's maybe think about some social distancing. Here's the challenge, Liz. With that, we around the world, we humans have a short memory, and whatever it is that we're talking about, once we get through the pain and we make good New Year's resolutions or new resolutions for the next time, we often forget that. Or we say, "Mm, we don't have the money for that, or we don't have the personnel and the time for that. And so we lurch from crisis to crisis because we aren't willing to invest in what we need for preparedness. Now, what about the balance? What about the balance of having to keep the economy going? Human beings are wired to be in community. They truly are. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we love to go to football games. We love to go to basketball games. We love to go to weddings. We need you to know, work and make money so we can feed our families. Yeah, so where's the balance? Lockdown is clearly not the long-term solution. And in fact, lockdown would not have been the preferred first step that we took. But the virus got ahead of us in this country and in lots of other countries. And the most rapid way to slow the infection and to reduce the number of cases was to put everybody in stay at home. So, uh, Mary Scott, I completely agree with you. Our world cannot live in lockdown. So the hope is that we have other less draconian steps that allow us to dance along that edge. And so what we about, see what the, about like contact tracing? Would that be yeah. a contact so, tracing is a, is a huge part of that. Um, but we have to have the personnel dedicated to do contact tracing effectively. So that the key phrases right now are test, um, trace and isolate. We need to have enough testing. We still don't have enough testing to give everybody who needs a test, a test. 
And then once we know who's infected, we have to trace who they've come in contact with and put those people on alert and then do some isolation. If we can do that successfully, then society can begin to resume some semblance of normal. We may all wear masks in public. We may uh, practice social distancing for a long time. We may reduce our occupancy at events, but we should still be able to do those provided we can test, trace, and isolate effectively. And then periodically, we'll need to go into a little more severe where we need to put this event on hold. The goal is to be able to live alongside this virus until we have a vaccine, not to shelter in place away from it. And contact tracing is tricky. I mean, South Korea did it effectively and avoided this heavy lockdown. But I've lived in South Korea when I was stationed in there with the Air Force. Different government, different sensibilities, different history. Um, you know, more willing to let the government um, be involved in their personal lives. And there have been some outcomes there that are not desirable. So contact tracing, I, I think we can do it, but we would have to be very mindful of, of Americans have a very different approach <laughs> and constitutional protections. And it's really tricky. It is very tricky. We value our independence. We don't want the government in our, in our business. Um, yet at the same time, we don't have any problem with letting people know where we are through social media and being able to follow my friends and our phones know who's in what location. So, so it's this very interesting mix. We as a society have to be willing, and we've shown we can do that. We have to be willing to think about our neighbors and give up a little bit of our independence and our freedom in order to think about what it means to protect them and to to help reduce their loss of life. Where that balance point is, it's probably going to vary from, from person to person and region to region, but contact tracing could be a way to give us more of those freedoms in exchange for a little bit more information about ourselves. I, I think there's been a large erosion of trust between all kinds of different institutions in the last several years. And I, for one, I, I cannot blame people for having lost some of that trust in some of our key institutions in government in press even. Um, and so I, I really, I, I do sympathize with people who are like, heck no, I'm not going to tell the government where I am at, at any time because I've seen the ways that they have abused it in the past. One of the, possible solutions for kind of mitigating that fear that I've seen is having a either a not-for-profit or just some sort of non-governmental institution be the one that develops that software and being owned by that NGO um, and, and not administrated by the government. Is that something that you could, that you think might be more palatable for Americans? It could be. Um, having it in the hands of a trusted third party. I, I'm not sure who the trusted third party is because we, you, you, you put your finger on it. We don't trust. I trust my tribe, but I don't trust others. And we, we find ourselves in a society that is so polarized and is so quick to jump to the conclusion about others that it, it's really going to be challenging. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and this is the time, 
this is the time for us to come together as a nation and to say, we can defeat this. We have defeated greater enemies in the past, and we can defeat this as well because we are we are humans, we are Americans, and we care about each other. That is really hard to see how we get to that message in our current climate where everyone is looking to score points against the other. Well, I too, I've been thinking a lot lately about the value of credible, trustworthy information sources. I keep find myself, finding myself coming back to this idea of who can you trust? Who can you trust? I think a lot of people are, but there's a book I like called The Trust Edge by David Horsager. Came out more than a decade ago, and he made the case then, and I do think it applies now, and I'll quote him. He says, in the 21st century, trust has become the world's most mm-hmm. precious resource. He says, the lower the trust, the more time everything takes, the more everything costs, and the lower the loyalty of everyone involved. And I just thought that has rung true throughout this whole this whole pandemic. I think we've seen that lack of trust play out in various ways people have responded to information. And I do think the pandemic has highlighted our society's hunger for that trustworthy information source. Uh, certainly, and I, I think we spoke to this in a new and evolving situation no one knows all the answers. That's, that is impossible. It's new and evolving. But we do owe a debt of gratitude to trustworthy sources, holding themselves to a high standard to find unbiased, accurate facts or facts information. And I do know that the three of us feel that way about Hudson Alpha. So thank you. And thank you for being part of an organization really endeavoring to try to find that credible information. Um, Neil, where can our listeners find those shareable science videos or connect with Hudson Alpha? So there's a couple ways you can do that. You can um, follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, and each time we put out a new shareable science video, we, we announce it that way. But you also can just go to HudsonAlpha.org front slash shareable hyphen science. So HudsonAlpha.org front slash shareable hyphen science. And that shows you all of the videos. Um, there are 17 of them right now. And we'll put out another two or three this week. And you can also subscribe to be updated every time a new one goes out. Perfect. Well worth the time. I think we're also very hungry right now for heroes. And we want to dedicate this show to one that Mary Scott brought to our attention. So Mary Scott, would you talk about that? We are dedicating this show to Command Sergeant Major Benny G. Atkins. Benny, uh, is a an awardee of the Medal of Honor. He succumbed to the coronavirus this week. I had the honor and the privilege of meeting him not too long ago with a project called The Wall That Heals. Benny survived 38 hours of battle in Vietnam, saved lives, saved his team, and then he survived another 48 hours of escape and evasion, uh, all the while just being... Uh, a a hero, a noteworthy hero. He is an Alabamian. He came back to Auburn and established a accounting practice. So Benny Adkins, rest in peace. Um, We are so sorry to see you go. He was 86 years old. Wow. Definitely a hero. 
This episode is brought to you through the support of our fabulous Patreon donors. We could not do this without each of you who contribute a little bit each month to make this podcast possible. If you would like to join others supporting Bell Curve, please go to patreon.com slash bellcurvepod. You can choose a support level. They start just at $3 a month. You can connect with Bell Curve on Facebook and Instagram at bellcurvepod. And please join the conversation in our closed Facebook group, Bell Curve Insiders. Hey, stay safe and sane and resilient and adaptable Curvies. As always, we are rooting for you. We are in this together and it's going to be okay. We'll see you next time.